I'm returning again to 2 Corinthians tonight. Uh, I've been coming back to it uh, most of the time I've had opportunity to, and Lord willing, I should be able to do three or four sermons on it this summer, including this one. And so tonight we're up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're looking at verses 2 through 16, that we'll be especially focusing on verses 10 and 11. At this point in the letter, Paul has just called the Corinthians to fidelity to the Lord and to the Lord's yoke. He's called them to forsake idols, and now he returns to a topic from earlier in the letter, the topic of how the Corinthians have responded to the severe letter that Paul sent them with Titus. This is a letter that's not part of the New Testament, a letter we do not have, but that was important in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. And so now here, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, Paul writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. When I started studying this text, it occurred to me fairly early on that it would take at least two sermons to deal with it properly, and so that's what I hope to do. Uh, There are two major points, at least going on here, I think. 
One is right in the middle of the text, in verses 10 and 11. And we're going to look at those verses tonight. The other point is in the rest of the chapter, the 13 verses that surround verses 10 and 11. And I will hope to turn to those verses the next time I preach, which should be about five weeks from now. The two portions of the passage obviously are related. They deal with related topics. They depend on each other. And so the five-week gap is not ideal, but it seems the best way to handle it. So tonight we're going to focus on verses 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me read just those two verses for you once more. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So tonight we're going to think about grief over our sin. In particular, we're going to look at two very different kinds of grief that we might experience when we sin. Let me start by saying, if you hear that topic and it seems a bit distant or vague to you, let me take a moment to try to convince you that it's not. On the one hand, if you're a Christian, you might agree that you do not like your sin. You might admit that you are frustrated or angry or discouraged by your sin. But for some of you, at least the word grief might seem a bit much. You might think maybe you should feel that way, but it feels a little melodramatic to you. It might feel a bit distant from your experience. And so let me start by saying that we can begin by considering grief over sin as whatever kind of distress we feel when we break God's law. Any distress of our fa- over our failure to live up to what God has called us to. We're going to get a bit more exact than that as we go on, but for now as we begin, think about what we're talking about tonight, about tonight simply as the bad feelings that we feel when we know that we've sinned against God. But what if you are here tonight and you're not a Christian? Or you're not sure that you are? Maybe you aren't sure what you think of this category of sin. Or if you do, you would not look to the Bible or to Christianity to define it for you. If that's you tonight, then does this passage have anything to say to you? And again, I want to argue that it does. Without getting into all the philosophical issues surrounding it, let me suggest that in your day-to-day life, you actually do believe in sin, and you do feel grief or distress over your sin, even if you don't tend to think of it in those terms. Francis Schaeffer, drawing from Romans chapter 1, put it like this. He said, imagine if every human being had an invisible tape recorder placed around their necks at birth. And this tape recorder was programmed so that it only recorded the moral judgments which you made about other people. Every time you said to someone, hey, you shouldn't do X, or you know you really should do Y, or I just think it's terrible that Bob did Z and treated those people that way. Every time you made a statement of what someone should or should not do regarding their conduct, regarding their morality, even if you wouldn't use that term, it would record that sentence. And you wear it all your life, and then you die, and then you stand before your maker. And Schaefer writes, 
Suppose then, God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in the light of your own moral judgments? And where would we stand? You see, when we evaluate the behavior of others, we make moral judgments. We define sin. Now, your personal standards might be different than the Bible's, but you still have that category. Maybe not in your official philosophy of life, but certainly in your day-to-day feelings and thoughts and actions. And not only that, I think we all know well before we die and stand before God that we fail to live up to even our own standards. We sin even against our own ideals. And when we do, we feel distress. We feel upset. We feel ashamed. We feel a kind of grief. And so this idea of feeling some kind of grief over sin is, I think, a universal human experience. Not all people might use those words to describe it, but all people experience it. Now, Paul is not trying to prove that here. He's, in a sense, taking that for granted. What Paul is focusing on in this passage, and what we'll be looking at tonight, is his focus on trying to get us to think about the kind of grief, the kind of distress that we feel when we sin, when we fall short. Kevin DeYoung, writing on this passage, points out that most people tend to assume that feeling sorry for something wrong that we've done is a morally neutral thing. I actually wonder if most of us tend to assume that feeling bad when we've done something wrong is a moral good. But the Apostle Paul here disagrees with both of those ideas. Paul is saying in this text that the kind of grief The kind of distress we feel over our sin, over our moral failures, is extremely important. So important that one kind leads to life and the other kind leads to death. And so the question before us, uh, or the questions before us, are first, what kind of grief do we feel? And then if we're feeling the wrong kind, what do we do about it? And so to answer those questions, we're going to try to do three things tonight with this text. First, we're going to try to diagnose our grief that we feel over sin. We need to determine what kind of grief it is that we often feel. Second, we need to expose the roots of worldly grief. And third, we need to think about how to pursue godly grief. So we need to diagnose our grief, expose the roots of worldly grief that Paul says here leads to death, and then to figure out how we are to pursue godly grief that Paul says leads to life and salvation. So we'll start at the top. First, we need to diagnose our grief over sin. When you sin, what kind of grief do you typically feel? It might be helpful to start, if you're asking that question, by bringing to to mind a particular instance where you have felt distress over your sin. Maybe something recently, maybe a particular sin, or maybe a pattern of sin. And let's ask, what kind of grief did you experience in that instance? Was it godly grief or worldly grief? Well, how do we distinguish between the two? Commentator Paul Burnett is helpful here. He points out the parallels of the descriptions of the two kinds of grief 
that Paul discusses, and how the structure implies some additional components for how we can describe them. Verse 10 reads like this. It says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, Paul is setting up these two kinds of grief, obviously, as opposites. And he spells out some of the ways that they're opposite from each other, but by his structure, he implies a couple others as well. Barnett fills those in to make the two halves of the verses complement each other. He says the implication is that if godly grief produces repentance, then worldly grief obviously produces unrepentance. The apostle explicitly contrasts the results. The repentance of godly grief then leads to salvation, while the unrepentance of worldly grief leads to death. But a final element is there as well. The salvation that comes from godly grief makes it a grief that is without regret, Paul says. And this also implies that the worldly grief is one that does have regret, that is filled with regret. And so the full idea that Paul is putting before us is this. As he says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And the flip side is that worldly grief produces unrepentance that leads to death with regret. That's the distinction he's making. And so, now how do we identify those two kinds of grief in our own lives? Well, key to doing that is the topic of repentance, being able to identify repentance in what we see. It's a visible thing, Paul says, that helps us distinguish them. And as we think about that, we also need to recognize that Paul is making a distinction between grief over our sin and repentance. They're not the same thing. Repentance involves some level of a certain kind of grief, as Paul has said, but repentance is primarily about turning. Repentance is about turning away from our sin and turning towards God. Unrepentance may feel grief, but it does not turn away from sin. It does not turn towards God in the midst of that grief. So repentance is a key indicator. It's helpful to diagnose the kind of grief that we have, but repentance, we have to remember, also isn't the thing that produces godly sorrow. It's the godly sorrow that produces the repentance, Paul says. We can think of it that repentance is the fruit of godly sorrow. That's what we see in verse 10. What, then, does worldly sorrow look like? Well, verse 10 implies that it looks like grief paired with unrepentance. So then what does that unrepentance look like? And I think as we ask that, we realize it can take a number of forms. One obvious form is that we minimize our responsibility for our sin. We explain how it's not really our fault. We find someone else to blame for what's happened. Earlier this week, uh, Rosie, our three-year-old, who has been told multiple times not to do this, stood up on one of our dining room chairs. She then lost her balance, fell off the chair, and somehow managed to do a half flip on the way down and land right about on her face. She was fine, um, but there were many tears. And after we comforted her and calmed her down, we tried to explain to her why this had happened. We tried to remind her how we've told her repeatedly not to stand on the chairs. And how one of the reasons that we have that rule is that she can fall down like this. And we pointed out to her that if she had obeyed us, then she would not have fallen and been hurt and scared. She thought about this, 
looked up at me and explained. Olive, she said, indicating her older sister, Olive tickled me the other day, and so I fell. (laughs) Three years old, and there she sat trying to explain to me that her falling was not the result of her disobedience, but the real cause of her falling off the chair that night was that Olive had tickled her a few days earlier. Now, we're hopefully a bit more sophisticated in how we evade responsibility for our sin, but I think overall we're not that much more sophisticated. Certainly not that much more sophisticated in God's eyes. We are often eager to believe that our sin or that the results of our sin are not really our fault, that there must be some other explanation. And that is one form that worldly grief can take. It does not lead to repentance because it denies that it has really done anything wrong. It denies that there's anything that needs to be repented of, anything that needs to be turned away from. Another form of worldly grief looks very different. It takes the form of hopeless despair over sin, over our shortcomings. We want to give up. We feel hopeless. We wallow. If godly sorrow is characterized by repentance, by actively turning, This kind of worldly sorrow might involve a lot of grief, but it's characterized by stasis, by inaction. We might seek to numb our feelings of failure by eating too much or drinking too much or by watching too much TV or indulging in something worse. But while we feel a lot of grief and we might try to numb that grief, overall we remain static. We do not turn. A great picture of this, I think, comes from Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. If you haven't read it, you obviously should. If you won't read it, there are movie versions. I personally suggest the BBC miniseries from 1995. I'm going to give a bit of a spoiler from the book uh, in this illustration. I'll try to mask some of the details, but I figure once the book has been out for over 200 years, it's sort of fair game. You had your chance. But at one point in the novel, a tragedy strikes. Lydia, the youngest sister of Elizabeth Bennet, who's the main character of the novel, Lydia runs off with a man to London. At first, they think that it's to elope, but then they learn that it does not appear that an actual marriage has taken place. Now, besides the moral implications of this, such a scandal in the early 1800s had huge social implications for a family like the Bennets. They would have been marked with scandal, really for the rest of their lives. They would have been socially excluded from those who used to be their peers. Their other daughters would have had a much harder time finding husbands to marry from families of their class. Whatever we might think of the social consequences that came from one member of the family doing this, those were the facts, those were the results of this scandal. And so the Bennets were facing this major scandal while Lydia and the man she ran off with remained together. No one knew exactly where they were, but they suspected that they were somewhere in London. And while there was a narrow chance of setting things right, of setting things in a way that would save the family's reputation, few people are optimistic at this point in the story that that would happen. And while Lydia is, of course, primarily responsible for her actions, it's also clear at this point in the novel, that everyone around her bears some responsibility as well. Her parents, her siblings, all of them had opportunities to guard her 
from this temptation or to warn her about the character of the man that she had, failed, that she had run off with. But each of them, for one reason or another, had failed to step in. Mr. Darcy, who had gotten to know the family also, had opportunity to warn her and others as well, but he also had not. And so he too bore some responsibility for what had happened. In other words, many people had failed to do the right thing at this point in the story. The question that remained was, how would each person respond? What kind of grief over their failure would each person experience? And here, Austin brings the contrast in. The first person we could consider is Lydia's mother, Mrs. Bennett. When she gets the news, she flees to her room, and there she stays, mostly in bed, for days. Elizabeth, who had been away, comes home to see how she can help the family, and once she comes home, she goes up to see her mother, who is in bed, and Jane Austen describes their meeting like this. She writes, Mrs. Bennett received them exactly as might be as expected, with tears and lamentations of regret, invectives against the villainous conduct of that man, and complaints of her own sufferings and ill usage, blaming everybody but the person whose ill-judging indulgence the errors of her daughter must be principally owing. That is, she blamed everybody but herself. As a family member prepares to leave for London in order to help, in order to help Mr. Bennett, who's already gone on there, who's there trying to locate Lydia and the man, Mrs. Bennett wants the family member to deliver a message to her, to her husband for her. She says, tell him what a dreadful state I am in, that I am frightened out of my wits and have such tremblings, such flutterings all over me, such spasms in my side and pains in my head and such beatings at heart that I can get no rest by night or by day. Mrs. Bennett, whose inaction contributed to Lydia's current situation, responds by plunging herself even into even less action. She's experiencing grief, for sure. That is the source of all of her claimed maladies. But it is a grief that leads her to stasis, to inaction, not one that causes her to turn away from her own failure. It is a grief that leads her to regret, but not repentance that leads to death rather than to life. It is a worldly grief. And then in contrast with that, Jane Austen gives us Mr. Darcy and his response. Mr. Darcy, as I said, also had some moral responsibility for what had happened. In the story, he happens to come visit Elizabeth when she first gets the news about her sister Lydia. Elizabeth tells him what happened, and Mr. Darcy is taken aback. He's distressed. He tells her that he's shocked and grieved. He paces the room. He broods. And then, after expressing his concern for her, he leaves her. Elizabeth assumes at that point that he leaves to get away from her, since her family is now marked with scandal. It's not until later in the novel that she finds out the full truth. Later she discovers that after he left her, he went home, packed his things, and left for London the very next day. Once there, he did not rest until he had not only found Lydia and the man she had run off with, but he continued until he made arrangements at his own expense to set everything right. And then he continued to convince both of them to go along with those arrangements. 
When others protested about what his financial contribution to this arrangement would cost him, he simply replied that he bore responsibility by not doing what he could have to prevent this from happening, and that it was only right that he pay what was needed to make things correct. Mrs. Bennett and Mr. Darcy had both, in a sense, sinned, or at least acted foolishly. They had both failed to do their part to prevent what happened to Lydia. And they were both grieved. They were both distressed. But their grief was of very different kinds, and it led to very different results. The question is, which one do we look like? How do we respond when we sin, when we fail? Is our response marked by the grieved but determined kind of about-face that Mr. Darcy makes? Or do we more resemble the self-pity and excuse-making of Mrs. Bennett? And please understand, the difference has nothing to do with how much emotion either of them felt. It was all about what kind of emotion they felt and then what they did with it. So when you look at your distress over your own sin, what kind of grief do you see? Godly grief that leads to repentance or worldly grief that turns in on itself and leads to unrepentance. I hope that we each see some kind of godly grief in us that leads to at least some repentance. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but that should be there. That is something we should certainly look for. If God's Spirit is at work in you, then repentance must be some part of your response to sin even if it's just a small part right now. But I also suspect that even if we find godly grief in our response to sin, we will also each find some worldly grief alongside it. Maybe a lot of worldly grief. And maybe sometimes we see only worldly grief. If that is the case, then what are we to do? Well, that leads to our second task. Once we've diagnosed our grief over sin, the second thing we need to do is to expose the roots of our worldly grief, to find out what is really underlying it. If unrepentance is the fruit of worldly grief over sin, we might ask, what is at its root? We can start maybe by identifying what's not at the root of of worldly grief. What is not at the root of worldly grief must be whatever is at the root of godly grief, right? That seems obvious enough. They can't have the same root with such different fruit that they bear. So then we can ask ourselves, what is at the root of godly grief that does lead to repentance? We get a good picture of that, I think, in the Heidelberg Catechism in questions 88 through 90. In those questions, the Catechism asks, what is involved in genuine repentance? And it points to two things. The first, it says, is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. The second thing it identifies is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. In other words, at the root of godly grief over sin is a hatred for sin and a love for God. We might add that it's really the love for God that serves as the foundation for that hatred for sin. And so at bottom... At its root, at its core, godly grief over sin is rooted in love for God. Which means that something else is at the root of worldly sorrow, of worldly grief. 
And that's really the meaning of worldly anyway. Calling it worldly is not to identify it with this physical world, but with the current orientation of the human world, the current orientation of human society in rebellion against God. Emmy Thrall points out that the term worldly in this context means the sphere in which life is lived without God and in opposition to God. So when some or all of our heart is not motivated by love for God, but is opposed to him, then what is at the core of our grief over sin? In Book 5 of The City of God, Augustine discusses the virtue of the Roman pagans in their early history. And he asks this question. He asks, how could these pagans seem to live so virtuously if they did not know or love the one true God? His answer as he wrestles with it is this. He writes, the ancient Romans, as their own history teaches and stamps with approval, quote, they were eager for praise, generous with their money, and longed for boundless glory and riches with honor. Augustine goes on, this glory they loved with a passion. It was for its sake that they wanted to live and for its sake that they did not hesitate to die. Their boundless desire for this one thing kept all other desires in check. A little later, Augustine elaborates, saying, for the sake of this one vice, that is, love of praise, these men suppressed the love of riches and many other vices. What Augustine is saying is that you can live a morally oriented life, a life that looks good, that seems morally ordered, and that therefore even includes some kind of grief over sin, he's saying that you could lead that kind of life, valuing and pursuing virtue, and it's possible to do that all based on a foundation of vice. In other words, we can live a morally rigorous life, a life that looks good, that impresses others, and at the core, there could be sin, the vice of the love of praise all our good deeds could be oriented around what other people will think of us. And if that's the case, then when we fail, when we sin, we will never, from that root, experience godly grief. Our distress at our failure will not be about our love for God or about what our sin has done to our relationship with God or what our sin has done to other people. Our grief will be about how our sin hurt what we really love which is being held in high esteem by others. And so if praise from others, if being held in high esteem by others is the core thing that motivates us, our grief will be worldly. We'll minimize or hide our sin when we fail in order to protect our standing in the eyes of others. Or, on the other hand, we might wallow and despair and pity ourselves because our failure has affected how others view us. Even if we do take action... It will be to repair our image, not to truly repent and right the wrong that we have done to God and others. On one level, this kind of worldly motivation for virtuous living, or at least externally virtuous living, can kind of work on the outside. You can live a life that looks pretty good on the outside based on the love of praise and esteem from others. You can look really good with this vice, at the core of your motivation. But ultimately, as Paul says here, such a life leads to death. And I'll tell you honestly, 
Speaking for myself, this is one of my biggest fears as a minister. This, I believe, is one of the biggest dangers for my soul, personally. That I might live a life of ministry, that I might have maybe a successful ministry, a ministry that looked fairly good on the outside, that produced maybe good sermons, that helped people, that was regarded as faithful, but that at its core, at its center, was not motivated by love for God or love for my congregation, but that was driven by a desire to be praised and highly esteemed by others. That I might have a good-looking ministry that was motivated by the vice of self-centeredness at its core. And that's not a crazy fear for a minister to have, not only because I know my own heart, but because I also know church history, and I know current events. And both in our day and in the history of the church, the landscape is littered with men who had such ministries and whose hearts were eventually exposed. And that's to say nothing of those whose hearts were not exposed in this life. But here's the thing. I also know that this is not just a problem for pastors. I know that every Christian struggles with this to some extent. When you fail, when you sin, are you more worried about what others will think of you or what God will think of you? Which one bothers you the most? Which one do you spend more time thinking about? Is your grief more caused by your love for God and your love for other people? Or is it more more caused by your love for your own reputation, among others? Which one are you more concerned for a lot of the time? Which one have you taught your children to be especially concerned for? As Christians, we all have a mix of motivations and a mix of griefs when we sin. It's usually not all or nothing. It's usually a combination of the two. A combination of godly grief and worldly grief. The first thing we need to do is to see, to expose the selfishness and the self-centeredness that lies at the root of our worldly grief. We need to see it for what it is. But the next thing we need to do is to actively pursue godly grief we need to pursue the type of grief that Paul praises the Corinthians for here. Now, what does that look like? How do we pursue that, pursue that godly grief that leads to true repentance? Well, as the Heidelberg questions we read earlier point to, there's really a process of two different motions going on at once. With one hand, we need to uproot our sin, and with the other hand, we need to nurture and grow righteousness. And so in this case, as we think about grief, we see that we need to uproot that self-centered core that leads to worldly grief. And we need to nurture and grow our love for God that leads to godly grief and repentance. Let's consider that briefly. First, we need to uproot that self-centeredness that leads to worldly grief. And that's exactly what Paul points out that the Corinthians have done here. In verse 11, Paul writes, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. In other words, the Corinthians owned their failure. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to defend themselves. They were indignant, Paul says, over their sin. They were fearful of its consequences, he says. They longed to correct what they had done, and they wanted to see justice carried out. 
Paul writes to them about how eager they were to clear themselves. He goes on and writes that by their actions they prove themselves innocent in the matter. When Paul writes this, when he writes that they've proved themselves innocent in the matter, he doesn't mean that they've proved that Paul's accusations were false, or that they've proved that they really weren't guilty of the thing Paul said they were. He doesn't mean that they were defending themselves successfully. He means that they've made themselves innocent, where they had been guilty. And that they'd done this by owning their guilt and by repenting. They admitted their fault, and then they truly repented of it to the core. And one of the ways we put our love for praise from others to death, one of the ways that we uproot our love for being held in high esteem by others, is that we own our failures. We own our sin. We admit it, and we repent of it openly. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around telling everyone about all of our sin all of the time. That's not what the Corinthians did here. That's not what Paul is praising. But it means that sometimes we need to actively kill our idol of being held in high esteem. And we need to do it by openly admitting our failures when we do fail and telling it and speaking of it openly at the right time and in the right place. And if we do that correctly, if we do that as the Corinthians did it, it will hurt. But it will also be a way of putting that sinful part of ourselves to death. In fact, it will probably be why it hurts as much as it does. Another way of putting this is that admitting our need to repent helps to kill off the part of us that would urge us to unrepentance. And so by doing that, we're made more able to repent, if that makes sense. The Corinthians admitted their need to repent, and that is what Paul rejoices over in this passage. Because their willingness to do that, and then the real action that they took to repent, shows that whatever sin may lie in their, heart, in their hearts, their ultimate loyalty was to Christ and to Christ's people. And when we admit our need to repent and then follow through on it, we do the same thing. So we put our worldly grief to death by first admitting our need to repent and then by following through on that repentance. But second, we also need to nurture our love for God. What does that look like? Well, obviously that can take a number of different forms, and it should. In the context of our grief over our sin, let me just suggest one for us in closing. Let me suggest that we meditate on Christ's suffering for us, that we meditate on the suffering that he took on in order to save us. And I don't mean anything complicated by that. I simply mean that we recognize our need to take time to reflect, to think about, to pray about regularly, specifically what Christ suffered in order to redeem us to himself. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the maker of heaven and earth, was beaten and bruised so that he might conquer sin and death in your life and be with you forever. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, was mocked. He was spit on. He was stripped bare before jeering crowds so that he might conquer sin and death in your life and be with you forever. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, was nailed to a tree and tortured to death by his enemies so that he might conquer sin and death in your life and be with you forever. 
Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, agreed to have the wrath of God against your sin poured out on himself so that he might conquer sin and death in your life and be with you forever. If we believe that those things are true, how can we treat his salvation so cheaply? How can we be so unmoved by our sin? How can we be so unfeeling about the gravity of our vices as we so often are? We need sometimes to hold that image of Christ's suffering before us in our minds. We need to reflect on what he has done for us. We need to nurture a heart of love for him by looking at the love that he has already shown us. And we need that love for him then to grow into a godly grief when we sin against him. But of course the process doesn't just end there. Because as Jesus' death on our behalf becomes more real for us in our minds and hearts, so his resurrection will also become more manifest in our lives. As we live more and more in light of the death that Jesus died for us, so his resurrection power should bring about more and more repentance and new life in us. As we experience godly sorrow for our sin, we do not stop there. We repent, we experience forgiveness, and we experience new life. And that new life in Christ brings such joy that we can honestly say when we experience it rightly, as Paul does about the Corinthians here, that we have no regret over the sorrow that we felt before. Yes, we regret our sin, but we do not regret the godly grief that that sin caused us. Because that godly grief has led us to life and to joy and to salvation in Christ. And so we do not stop at the cross, but we move on to the resurrection. For our Lord died for our sins so that we might not experience grief that leads to death. And he rose from the dead that we might instead experience his salvation. And as we've seen again and again in 2 Corinthians, in Christ, for Christ's people, death always leads to resurrection. And so when we sin, we're faced with two paths. One is worldly grief rooted in selfishness and in the love of praise that leads to denial and to self-protection and to inaction, and ultimately to death. The other path is godly grief, rooted in love for Christ, based on what he has done for us, which leads us to repentance and salvation and the joy of new life. Let us fix our eyes on Christ and pursue that new life that we have in him. Amen.